Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Uh, welcome everybody to City Beautiful. Uh, we are in the season of Advent. I'm excited today because um, a lot of times I uh, finish my message just a little bit early. So I finished this one on Thursday and I don't remember what I wrote. So I, this is exciting because this is as new to me as it will be to you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, and it feels like the pastor didn't actually prepare. That's the kind of church I want to be part of. Um, so we're in Advent. This is, uh, Advent is a word. It means coming or arrival. And uh, we've really come to value the season of Advent over the years in our church community because it feels almost like an act of resistance uh, to step out of the hustle and the bustle of the, our surrounding culture um, and the expectations that our culture gives us of what this season is supposed to be uh, and to kind of purposely slow down and to learn this uh, expectation or this waiting uh, for, the, for Christmas to arrive because um, we recognize this isn't about uh, gifts and parties and, and year-end lists and all of those things, although all of that's wonderful, but this is really about preparing ourselves for the arrival of Jesus. And I talked about last week how we're kind of looking at it almost in three uh, different ideas being bunched together. We look back to remember the first coming of the Christ child. We think about it in the present moment as Christ coming to each one of us, like us receiving him into our hearts in the present moment. And we also kind of anticipate the second coming of Christ and when God will finish what it is that God started through uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's really how we're framing the time. It's this sense of expectation, of slowing down, of learning how to wait well. So when Christmas comes, we don't actually miss it. And so last week, um, we talked about the prophets. I was talking to, to Shav, uh, pastor at Tribe on Friday. He's going to be preaching next week. So make sure, please make sure you show up on time when my friends come over. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed and be like, sorry, Shav, no one's here. They will be eventually. Um, but he, I was, I was kind of explaining to him while we're doing this series. He says, man, I love it when we start in the darkness. And I said, yeah, it's like every good story starts in the darkness, which feels counterintuitive sometimes to the Christmas season for, certain, for sure, but we build the light as we're moving through the season. We're gathering more and more light, and those prophets teach us how do we sit in the darkness? How do we learn to feel the sense of despair or disconnect that the world isn't the way that it could or should be? And, but how does that process of feeling that divide uh, begin to set us act for real hope, not a sense of blind optimism, like everything's just going to be okay, but a real hard-earned hope that's forged in that patient, holy sense of waiting in the darkness for the light to arrive. And so this week, we're going to be looking at the angels. We're going to be looking at John the Baptist as kind of these uh, forerunners. So if last week was about waiting, uh, this week is going to be a little bit more about preparing. So I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll see what I wrote on Thursday. I'm probably really good. I don't know. Um, so, Heavenly Father, we testify that you are here and that you're with us. Um, you are Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, I pray that in this season, above all others, um, whatever we think about you, whatever our first line of explanation of who you are is, 
that that would become the most important truth, that you are um, he who is with us, who is for us, and who turns curses into blessings. Lord, I know many of us, myself included, we come in to this space each week with this sense of um, itchiness or restlessness. Um, We're thinking about the things that we have to do this afternoon or all of the um, responsibilities that we have to close out the year or to, to make preparations for whatever, whatever we're doing this month. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to slow down, to breathe, to be fully present in this moment. Um, that any sense of guilt or regret that we're dragging in from the past or a sense of anxiety about the future, and that we would lay that at your feet today and so that we don't miss a moment of what you have in store for us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, we want to talk about preparation today. I want to begin kind of with this. Um, Advent prepares the highway between heaven and earth. So we saw this, uh, this language through the prophet Isaiah or Isaiah, Kaylee, um, <laughs> Uh, in, in this reading that we did earlier uh, today that Jennifer read to us, that there's this talk of this highway, this, this way um, that is being made between uh, the physical world and the spiritual world. Um, and it, one helpful way to think about this is that the spiritual world is the gateway, or the physical world is the gateway to the spiritual um, so a lot of times we think the physical world, that's the realest of the real, and the spiritual world is some nice platitudes that we say and this kind of other place that's, you know, got these little baby angels floating around playing harps and whatnot. Um, but it's, it's a little too esoteric and hard to think into, but the physical world, this is what's really real. But the, um, the vision that we have from Scripture, certainly the Old Testament prophets, is recognizing that the, the physical world um, is part and parcel of this entrance into the spiritual world, it, but it, it, it needs interpreting. It needs us opening up, and we need guides to really enter into that. Um, that the spiritual world is really, it's not kind of floating around on clouds up in the sky, although that's some of the, the, the imagery they used, they didn't think in that way, but they were talking about this place of eternity, of this eternal union with God, um, where everything works the way that it's supposed to work. Um, and and, the, and in that uh, reading from Isaiah, it's spoken of as Zion. Zion becomes this language for the place where heaven and earth have been brought back together, where the spiritual world and the physical world are fully in uh, unity with one another, in a sense of peace. And I think this is really fascinating, uh, especially in our day and age, that we are kind of in this post-Enlightenment era, okay? So if you think back to the, the, the Enlightenment and within the church, it was the Reformation. There was this move away from an acknowledgement of the spiritual world that a lot of um, philosophers, scientists, and so on said, well, there's no such thing as the spiritual world. We can't test it. We can't measure it. We've created all these uh, schema to be able to learn what is truth, and we can't measure this thing that everyone's taken for an assumption, so it must not really be real, Um, And we are inherently physical beings in a physical, observable universe. And that carried us through for about 400 years. Um, But that started to kind of break down because I still think there was this deep sense within us as a species that there's something more than what can be observed with our natural eyes. There's something more than what we can touch, than what we can sense in those conventional ways. 
And I think there's been a real breakdown of that. How many of you were in youth group in like the 90s? Okay, um, the biggest enemy was the atheists, right? And we had to school the atheists. So you were given all the really great apologetic arguments to like to fight them on these different points. None of us were prepared for like tarot cards making a, a huge comeback or uh, astrology coming back around again, huh? New the, yeah, the new age, like we weren't really prepared for a lot of that. I also, <laughs> I heard a comedian say, oh, I get why, um, why white women love astrology is because if anything goes wrong for them, it must be the universe's fault. <laughs> I thought that was real, real funny. Maybe you don't think it's as funny as I do. But there's something has shifted in our culture. And I do think in the midst of all of that, what I hear in this, in a lot of the things that's uh, you know, happening within, like especially I'd say for like Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z, there is this sense, like we know intuitively there's something more than just the physical world. Like the enlightenment way of thinking has failed us. Um, and, it, and, and most importantly, it robbed us of the capacity to ask the bigger questions that science can't answer. I love science, I appreciate science, we're in a science center, and this wasn't a sense of subversive like takeover, like we're gonna bring this place down from the inside. It's like, I love science, but it's recognizing the limits. It, 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 has a, it struggles to answer these deeper questions of why are we here? What is their purpose? What is, what is all of this actually about? And we're in, I think, a shift of post-enlightenment thinking where we're reclaiming, number one, the idea that there is something beyond what is observable, uh, but number two, that there are these questions that are at the, the heart of every human being uh, that beg to be asked. And so we recognize that we are spiritual and physical beings, but we need something to bind those back together. And did you know that the word religion uh, comes, what it means is religio, which means to bind back together. That's what religion means, religio, like a ligament in, your, in your, uh, your ankle or your knee or whatever. It's to bind something back together. And that's what religion does, is that it binds together the spiritual and the physical worlds. And so we have uh, songs, sacred scripture, sacred practices, all of these things that are part of religion, even language itself, that's helping us to open up beyond just the physical world to begin to bind back together these two things that have been uh, cleft in twain, as the King James says, um, but this, this spiritual reality that we've lost for 400 years. So I think Advent is a way of thinking about this highway being created between heaven and earth, between the physical world and the spiritual. I think this is a wonderful way to frame the Advent Christmas story, to say, well, how is it that God is going to take that which has been cleft in twain and to bring it back together, to bring it into accordance with a fuller picture of God's uh, universe, of God's creation? And so when we see that, in the Advent story, what we, what we recognize is that God enters into the physical world as an infant in order to repair the breach and welcome us back into the spiritual one. That's one way of understanding the, the Advent and the Christmas story, is that God breaks into our world, our assumption. This is the way that things work. We just know how this thing functions. This is all that there is. God breaks into that assumption um, in order to kind of create this highway that brings us back into the spiritual realm as well. And so the Bible, in a way, is a story of that breach. That in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, we see this full integration of heaven 
and earth, of the spiritual world and the physical world. And that us, for as human beings, we were created to kind of be the ambassadors. We were created to be the bridge between the purely spiritual world of God and the physical world of animals and plants and so on. But something went wrong and we, through sin, um, became trapped in almost like this half world where things begin to fall apart. That the physical world on its own, by its own measure, cannot survive. And we began to turn inward on one another. We began to gobble each other up. We began to fight. We began to, to abuse uh, the creation. We, uh, we abuse the earth itself because that's what happens when we divorce ourselves from spiritual reality is that we think the earth itself is a commodity that's there for us to be exploited or to, to make money off of and not recognizing that our first vocation of, as human beings was to steward the earth, was to encourage uh, the flourishing of God's good creation. And so things begin to fall apart after that fall and our kind of exile from Eden. And we begin, as Paul says in Romans 1, to worship created things instead of the creator. We begin to worship other human beings. We begin to worship idols, which really just means we started to divert our attention from the one true God uh, to things that are kind of in the physical world and, and, and say that that's where we derive our value. And that's kind of the source of a lot of the, the, the evil in the world uh, that humans incur, is that we take our eyes off of God as our true source, we begin to turn them to one another or to created things, and we begin to consume one another. And so when you see this whole sweep of scripture, what you see is this God that kind of is presented as this shapeless, formless God, standing over and above all the other gods in the Old Testament, um, who breaks into the story first through um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kind of following that story through Moses and the rescuing of Israel, bringing them into the desert, establishing the nation of Israel, um, giving them judges and then kings, and then sending the prophets to prepare them for the exile. What God is essentially doing that whole time is he's de-idolizing Israel, that they were uh, subject to what you and I do all the time, is that we make idols out of people and things and ideas that fall short of the glory of God. And so God is constantly, like that's one of the, 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 the our misunderstands the Old Testament is we think Israel was a monotheistic culture, and it really wasn't. They, they had monotheistic aspirations, but they were really good polytheists, which I think is a great way to, to explain America. Like we have probably vaguely monotheistic aspirations, but we love our idols and we love our political heroes and our entertainment heroes, all these little idols that we create that we maybe would say we believe in God, but we really have this little lineup of these little statues that are where we really find our value. And so through the Old Testament, God is de-idolizing the people of Israel, getting them to let go of these small ideas. But in the New Testament, God kind of pivots and uh, incarnates into a physical person. So imagine this, like God is removing the idea of God being physical through the whole Old Testament to get us out of idol worship, like God is not a half man, half fish or whatever. But then in the New Testament, God incarnates in a human being. Like God has a shape now which seems really counterintuitive, but I think it's a profound move of God. And not only that, but God incarnates as an infant. Now, God could have come in any shape or form that God wanted, but God chose to come and first arrive on the scene to incarnate, to be enfleshed as an innocent child. 
And I think there's so much there for us to meditate on. It's one of my favorite things about Advent and Christmas is thinking about like, we were waiting to know what does God look like? What does God sound like? And the first thing that God looks like is a newborn baby crying in a manger. I don't like that. I love the song Away in a Manger, even though you all have a different uh, melody than we do in the UK. Um, but that li- there's that one line that says, no crying he makes. And I always thought that was interesting. I mean, why, do, why would we think that the Christ child wouldn't cry? Because he's too perfect, like he's above emotions. You imagine this little stoic baby that's just constantly like, hmm. <laughs> no, like this, this baby probably cried a lot. And this baby, like God crapped his pants. You know what I mean? Like it was in flesh. This is the incarnation. God has a shape and that shape is an infant child. One of my favorite readings uh, for the Advent season and the Christmas season is John chapter one, which we often don't think about necessarily as Christmas, but it kind of tells it from a slightly different angle uh, than the, the, the way that Matthew and Luke tell the story. So this is John chapter one, beginning in the first verse. And I want you to think about this as a Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What a very bold statement to make at the beginning of the New Testament. See, no one's ever seen God. You're like, well, what about Abraham? Nope. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't really see God. What about Moses? It's like, you know, God, Moses got really close, but they couldn't see God. But now we do. And that, that line there in verse 14, that the word uh, was made flesh um, and made his dwelling among us, the, the, the word there specifically is tabernacled. Like God pitched his tent among us. Or as Eugene Peterson says in his translation, uh, God moved into the neighborhood. And God chose to enter into our physical world to create this highway to bring us back into relationship with the the spiritual one. I think it's really bold for the New Testament to say that we've only ever had glimpses of God. Every, Every story that we see, every account of the move of God in the Old Testament is just a glimpse. It's a hint. It's limited. It's not the full picture of what God is really like. And we see this time and again in the New Testament where the writers there are saying, no, no, now we know. We didn't always know what God was like, but now we do, and God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. We just didn't always know that. In Hebrews chapter one, um, the writer says, you know, in the past, God spoke to us in various times, in various ways through the prophets, but now he has revealed himself through his son. Jesus is the image of God in the exact representation of his character. It's not a hint of what God is like. It's not just a part of what God is like. Like God is not going to behave in ways that run contrary to what we see in Jesus. So how does that change your idea of God? 
to gaze upon the vulnerable Christ child in the manger, that God was born, you know, into a lower class on the outskirts of town uh, to an unremarkable people that are constantly being um, bullied by the surrounding empires. Like, what does that do to say, well, that, that's actually what God is really like? Like, is there something in you where you need to be delivered from that kind of philosophical Greco-Roman God that is, you know, kind of possess, he's like so omni that he doesn't have any feelings or any shape or um, any emotions. He's not particularly interested in you to go, no, the, the true image of God is the Christ child in the manger. And all through the story of God in scripture, we find these accompanying characters um, that kind of help us to see God is building this bridge or this highway between heaven and earth. And it's the angels. The angels are the ambassadors of the spiritual world, opening us up to more than what we can see with our natural eyes. That's what angels do. There's a lot of angelology is this whole big thing. And I don't claim to be an expert. I find some of the discussions like vaguely interesting about who they are and what they do and what their shape is and all of these things. This is, I mean, Christmas is just a really great opportunity to bring this up again, you know? Uh, which is also, I think that's like a little infant baby in the middle of, I'm not sure. <coughs> but um, there's a couple things that we do know, like where uh, we've been more uh, influenced by precious moments than we have by the scriptures themselves. Um, angels, uh, number one, are not your deceased relatives. Um, it's a very sweet and saccharine thing to say at a funeral, um, to say, oh, uh, you know, heaven has another angel. No, that's not true. Um, <laughs> sorry, like angels are not your, your dead great-grandmother. Um, she is, hopefully, in a place called paradise, um, which is the place that she's going to just hang out in you know, the, the bosom of Jesus until the resurrection uh, and the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. But she's not an angel. Um, angels um, differ from us in that they don't have autonomy like we do. Like we can choose to be uh, not what we were created to be. Um, angels don't have that option. And so in one way it makes us, uh, you know, it says like, um, a couple times in scriptures, like kind of how in the order of things that have been created, like we are this highest creation of God because we carry God's image. And part of that is that we get to choose to love God or choose not to love God. And that's not necessarily something um, that is ascribed to angels. Angels have all sorts of shapes in, uh, certainly in the Old Testament and the new, like we see that one, the wheels within wheels and the uh, you know, the creatures that have these like kind of four heads and all of this. But we do see a lot of times in the Old Testament angels show up and they appear to be some kind of person shape, okay? So it's not, it's not always that, um, but they, they do have this person shape. But the thing that seems to be common, whatever they are, is that these divine beings that go between heaven and earth. So like uh, Jacob has this vision, for example, of a ladder that goes up into heaven and he sees the throne room of God and these angels going up and down uh, the ladder itself, praising God day in and day out. What we see typically in both the Old Testament and the New is that angels arrive on the scene to wake us up from the dull sleep 
of believing that this world is all that there is. That's what angels tend to do. They wake us up to say, hey, there's more happening than what you can see, feel, and touch, and you need to get ready for the move of God. So uh, this is an absolutely lovely Christmas story that we're going to be reading today. It's one of these ones that fits before the actual arrival of Christ, and it's, um, it's speaking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and his extended family. So this is a, a story that's about the, the, the prophetic word that comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth about how they're going to have a child that's going to act as this forerunner for Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But, <clears throat> excuse me, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now already, again, especially if you're a good Hebrew, you're thinking about this story, you're like, okay, married couple, uh-huh, check, super dedicated to God, got it, really old, okay, and they can't have kids. Now you're probably, you know that this is a pattern that you've seen time and again in the Hebrew scriptures, so you're already anticipating, you're like, okay, something's about to happen here, because this is exactly the kind of formula that Yahweh likes. God likes these kinds of unfortunate situations. God likes, uh, God likes tragedy. God likes the opportunity to demonstrate the power of God in unlikely scenarios. So once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And then the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So remember, the temple is the symbolic overlap of heaven and earth. For, 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 the, Jew, for the Jews, that was the place where heaven and earth, like the, the veil between them is especially thin. And so the priests kind of act as these ambassadors uh, of the people. They burn incense, which is the symbol of acknowledging the spiritual reality, especially God. And that's what their worship, and it's what our worship is really about. It's about kind of opening up our awareness to the spiritual reality. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So for those of you who believe that you have to speak in tongues before you get the Holy Spirit, uh, 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 he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. 
And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So imagine this scene that, you know, the, the temple is this religious space, this religio, this, this attempt to bind back together the physical world and the spiritual world where heaven and earth meet. There is language, there is symbol, there are practices that are helping the people to kind of maintain this connection. But still in that, Zechariah is just maybe just going through the motions. I don't doubt that he was completely devoted to God, but when God actually chooses to move, he's kind of shocked. And he's like, what, what is happening? And how many of us were, were religious? Like, I think it's good to be a religious person. I think you need all of that stuff to help you to, to keep focused. But how many of us are just going through the motions so often that we would maybe forget that God is actually real and alive and present to us and, and willing to do something that kind of go, goes outside of the norm of what we expect of the world around us. And so this angel, Gabriel, shows up, and there's this reason, I think, that angels always begin speaking. They say, do not be afraid. And maybe it's because they look like crazy discs covered in eyeballs and flames. That could be part of it. But I think a different part of it is you and I are afraid of the spiritual realm. Um, part of the reason I think that we created this idea in the enlightenment of like the physical world is all there is, truth has to be measurable and observable is because we're afraid of things that we can't comprehend. We're afraid of things that we can't understand. We believe knowledge is power. And if I can't control something through uh, my logical or rhetorical devices, um, then I don't want to acknowledge that it's valid uh, because I don't know what to do with that, the sense of unknowing or possibly uh, the sense of chaos. I think we're afraid of the spiritual realm. We're afraid of God. We're afraid of what angels symbolize because we're afraid of the things that we can't comprehend with our earthly eyes. And so Gabriel's invitation to Zechariah, do not be afraid. The angel showing up to Mary and Joseph and saying, do not be afraid, is almost a welcome to them and by extension to us to say, slow down, don't reject something that you can't understand. Just because you don't get it doesn't mean that it's not happening around you and it's not happening to you. Open yourself up just to the possibility that God might be doing something in and around you that you weren't expecting. And so Zechariah receives this, kind of challenges the angel. And it's very funny, he's told like, well, you're not gonna get to talk until this kid comes along. Everybody's very confused. He's trying uh, you know, to basically do charades to get them to understand this, but how do you explain that like an angel just showed up and prophesied that your old barren wife is about to have a child? Like it's, 
It just doesn't work. <clears throat> but he's able to com- convey this to Elizabeth, and she receives this valuable truth and this sense of joy that God has chosen her out of these extraordinary circumstances. And so the prophecy that Zechariah is given about John is that he is to be this forerunner. That uh, Again, in the prophet Isaiah, it says, this, he's, there's going to be one calling in the desert, make straight the paths. And so John is the one who's also prophesied to prepare the way for God to break into our reality. And that's how we understand John the Baptist's life. He goes just ahead of Jesus and is constantly saying, get ready, get ready, like get yourself lined up, like open your eyes because God is about to do something extraordinary here. So in a way, John and the angels have rather the similar vocation that both of them are these forerunners. They're, they're kind of like they're lined up on the highway between the spiritual world and the physical to say, you better get ready for what God's about to do. Like, don't miss it. Don't get so obsessed with only the, the things that your eyes can see and the world around you that you can measure that you actually miss what God is about to do when God breaks into our reality in order to bring us back uh, into relationship with him. So I think the question for us today is, in this Advent season, how are you preparing the way for heaven and earth to join back together? That the, the, the responsibility of John the Baptist, like his vocation, is now your vocation. If you know God, specifically the God that is shaped like Jesus, you are called to stand on that highway between heaven and earth, and to tell the people around you, wake up, get ready, something is about to happen. I love that later in his life, Jesus, this is in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus differentiates himself from John and from the angels, not just to say, I'm someone who's come to give you good advice on how to get to heaven. Um, I'm not somebody who's here to tell you this thing is going to happen. He says, I am the way. I am the highway to God. That Jesus is the bridge between the spiritual and the physical worlds. He's the center of all things. He is the locus of what God is doing in this world. So you and I, we are ambassadors of the highway of God. We are the angels calling out to our friends and our family to say, do not be afraid. Open yourself to to possibility. Open yourself to a sense of ridiculous hope. We are John going ahead, like entering into the desert to make straight the paths for our God. Angels, John, you and, and I, we're kind of stitches that are sewing heaven and earth back together. So I think part of the the challenge of the Advent season is for you to internalize and then begin to speak out, to say, hey, wake up, get ready, prepare. Don't be afraid. Something wonderful is about to happen. And so in the story, Elizabeth gets to meet um, with her cousin Mary, the, the infant child, John, in, in, her, in her womb, leaps in this recognition of that he's in the presence of the Christ child for the first time. And Elizabeth 
begins to open up to say, wow, not only has God done something spectacular in my life, but he's doing something in the life of my cousin Mary, and the two of them worship together. So John uh, is born. Everybody in their community is absolutely amazed at this miracle that God has done. And he's brought to the temple, um, you know, to be presented, to be circumcised, welcomed into the Jewish family. And finally, Zechariah's mouth is open. So I want to invite you all to stand, and I'm going to read over you the song of Zechariah, the words, the first words he's finally able to speak um, when God opens up his mouth to say, here is this extraordinary thing that I have promised you. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So Father, we thank you for the testimony of your servant Zechariah, that he, like us, is a religious person, an expectant person, an obedient person, but perhaps, uh, like him, we have lost um, this sense of expectation that you might do something outside of the ordinary in this season. So God, I pray that you would send angels to each one of us to wake us up from believing this is all that there is, that nothing will change, nothing will, the story will not move forward, but that we would be awoken to the reality of the spiritual world all around us. And in this season, Lord, that we would learn how to prepare our hearts to receive you anew but that we would also become John crying in the desert. We would also become the angels on the highway of God saying, get ready, do not be afraid. Something wonderful is about to take place. So Lord, as we worship you this morning, I pray that you would do whatever you want to do in each of your dear ones, that you would speak to each one of us something that we need to hear to enter in still deeper to this Advent season to recognize the beauty of your arrival. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.